This is the Education Gadfly Show. Let's point out a study that challenges some of our notions here at Fordham. We are not afraid of that. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We're the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for the week, Patricia Levesque. Patricia, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Excited to kick off the new year with you. Well, excited to have you here. Uh, all of you must know that Patricia is the Chief Executive Officer of Excel in Ed. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. Uh, happy Inauguration Week to all of you. Uh, we are taping this just a few hours after the new inauguration. And uh, wow, some wonderful speeches. And, and I think we're all going to be talking about the uh, Youth Poet Laureate for a long time to come. She was just remarkable. I don't know if you had a chance to see that, Patricia, if, or if you were too busy working away in Ed Reform, but uh, you got to check it out. 23-year-old uh, just knocked it out of the park with her, uh, with her poem, which was completed after the January 6th attacks, actually. And by the way, private school attendee, K-12, uh, she was. So there you go. All right, Patricia. But uh, hey, we're here to talk Ed Reform. And, and while a lot of people are understandably focused on Washington, D.C. right now, as we have a brand new administration, as uh, Secretary of Education designated. Cardona is going to be going through a confirmation hearing soon, we hope. I don't think we have a date for that yet, but soon. And yet, let's remember that the real action always happens at the state level in education. So we're going to talk about what to expect this uh, legislative session in the states on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Patricia, well, look, Excel and Ed, you all do a better job than anybody out there in the country tracking what's happening in the debates at the state level as you work across the country and deep in, in multiple states. Most states have legislative sessions that are beginning right about now, especially those states that, have, uh, that, that are part-time legislatures. You know, they have a big sprint now over the next maybe three, four or five months to pass a bunch of bills, maybe pass a budget bill. And so we're off and running so I'm curious, uh, you know, first of all, what are you seeing? Uh, let, let's assume that most of what's going to happen out there is related to the current COVID pandemic and crisis uh, to recovery, learning loss. Is, is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, absolutely. Nearly 20 states have already started their legislative session. Some started the very first week back from January. And we're seeing several big themes in state legislative sessions. The first is one that you've identified, which is learning loss. And states are kind of tackling that with early literacy and tutoring and um, assessment type policy discussions. Of course, the budgets, states have to pass balanced budgets. And so how they deal with funding this next year, how they count students, and if they carry on some policies that they enacted during the pandemic. Digital divide issues are still going to be discussed across states. A lot of movement that we're seeing even early on school choice or mm -hmm. educational options. Plus, uh, there are some interesting things on innovation or flexibility, college career pathways, kind of the bread and butter stuff we're also so seeing movement on. That, that you would see every year. I, I am curious, Patricia, you know, I, when I look at President Biden's plans, especially his new $1.9 trillion proposal, you dig into some of the education stuff there you know, it's still very much focused on getting schools reopened as if we could get a bill like that passed and the money distributed and out to the states and out to the schools soon enough for that to make a difference. In other words, you know, to spend that money on opening schools just before the pandemic is over. And I'm just curious, it feels to me like it's almost too late, you know, that let, let's assume, let's hope that the pandemic is mostly behind us by the fall. Like, 
in the states are they even trying to do things around reopening or is it just too late for that is that sort of baked in and they're focused on what comes next yeah, I think a lot of states, because of, as you said, they have these spring legislative cycles, they have to pass their budgets for the fall now. So you've already got 14 states where the governors have already announced their proposed education budget. The interesting thing, I think, the, to see is that in those 14 states, those governors are proposing level funding or increased funding for education. Now, some of that's a combination of, you know, state fiscal policy, maybe, and and the economic recovery that has started off a little bit better than they were forecasting. And I'm sure the latest round of federal stimulus funds is baked into some of that thinking. But I think most state legislatures and governors are getting their budgets ready, not counting on, even though people expect it to come, some you know, other round of, of fiscal stimulus. It does seem like it's a bit of a conundrum here because states and districts and schools are going to have to spend that federal money, but some of them also worry about cuts coming. So then you're in this funny position of, right, what do you spend the money on that doesn't entail long-term obligations that you just have to turn around and cut? On the other hand, this is great news if, if the downturn isn't as bad as feared, if those you know, it sounds like revenues, especially, look, if to the extent that states tax wealthier individuals a lot more and the stock market is booming and, uh, you know, some of the, the sales tax revenue hasn't been as bad as anticipated, then, uh, then look, this is good news that states are in better fiscal shape than some of us thought they were going to be. Yeah, I'm not saying all of them are. I, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are states that have, have, you know, started their committee process with here's the, you know, fill in the blank billions of dollar yeah. hole that we have to fill but surprisingly, there are already 14 states where the governors have said we're maintaining or we're increasing yeah. investment in education. That's the good. one That's other good. kind of weedy issue that states budget committees are dealing with is how do they fund students next year, right? Mm-hmm. In this past year with the pandemic, there were a lot of emergency provisions or flexibility waiver, hold harmless we're going to fund you based on how many kids you thought you were going to have rather than students that actually showed up or that you can find. And so those discussions are going on right now. Do we continue those policies? You know, doing so actually will uh, create a bigger budget issue for us when you have some districts and schools that are growing their enrollment Mm -hmm. and some that are not. And yet we've been holding harmless the ones that yeah. you know, have had declining or missing students. So that's a lot, that's a, a good chunk of, of debate in those actual education budget committee hearings. Yeah. And of course, we, we can only make educated guesses about what, which kids are going to come back, right? And where they're going to land. <laughs> no, it's hard. I mean, there's a bunch of kids out there that are just gone missing, right? You certainly worry about the older kids just never coming back. I'm sure a big concern. What are you seeing, Patricia, when it, when it comes to the high dosage tutoring or extended learning time? Are states just thinking, hey, we're just going to give local districts more money and, and to spend on those things and then let them figure out the details? Or are you seeing some states trying to create statewide initiatives that, that are really run at the state level? Well, I think what's interesting is just in the early activity, Tennessee is holding a special session this week. Indiana released a package earlier this month, and they're both dealing with learning loss and really targeting very similar issues. They're looking at assessment policy. They're looking at early literacy, training of teachers in the science of reading and putting in more early intervention because they're really looking at those early years. Both states are putting in place tutoring supports 
mm-hmm. summer learning, summer camps, summer reading interventions. Um, and Indiana has added to their learning loss package an education savings account for special needs and foster children. So both states are tackling very, very similar issues in their priority legislation. Florida has done a lot in their learning loss that has been more focused on early literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and, and look, that that makes sense. It's certainly, when it comes to reading, we know if to the extent that we're seeing learning loss, it's in those, especially in those early years, if kids aren't getting the foundational reading, which is really hard to do when they're learning remotely or they're only coming to school two days a week. David, what's on your mind? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to build on that. And, and at the risk of putting Patricia on the spot here, have you come across anything that struck you as a particularly good idea that any states are doing? Because I know I speak for Mike and everyone here when I say we've been struggling with what the best approach is to tackling what's you know going to be unprecedented learning loss facing a, a system that's sort of already grappling at deficit, I guess, right? Um, when it comes to this sort of thing, is there anything that struck you as well? This is the best way to approach this sort of challenging problem. Sure. I, I think I don't want to frame it as the best way, but sure. I want to identify it as a really, really interesting thing. If no one paid attention to it, I want to bring your attention to it. New <laughs> sure. Hampshire. Uh, So the state of New Hampshire just announced the first statewide, first in the nation partnership with Sal Khan and Schoolhouse.World. So this is going to bring free tutoring Mm -hmm. to all New Hampshire high school students. Starting, and it's primarily focused on high school math, but the plans are to expand to other subjects, more grades, more topics. But I think that's something that we all should be watching, Mm -hmm. how a state is partnering with a nonprofit to have free tutoring for their high school students. Really, really innovative thing, and more people should be paying attention to it. Free for the students or free for the state? (laughs) Free for the students, free for the state. Wow. Free for both. It's a really interesting, you know, Sal Khan is so visionary and he started this, he calls it a side project of bringing free tutoring to the masses. Those are Mm -hmm. his little, he has these little bitty goals, but they've partnered with New Hampshire. And one of the reasons that they picked New Hampshire to figure out how do you create a state relationship is because New Hampshire has two policies in place, which are mastery-based credit, where kids can demonstrate that they know something to receive credit, and they have a learn anywhere policy. So you can get credit from different sources. That made it a really interesting partnership to kick off. I think there are gonna be other states that are gonna wanna copy and do something very similar. So that would be something that I think folks should dig into and, and watch. That brings up one last topic, Patricia. We could, we could go on and on, but uh, we don't have the time. But I am curious, are there other examples of states uh, where they're saying, hey, we want to keep doing some of what we've been doing over the past year, these innovations that we've had to do because of the pandemic, we found out actually worked pretty well for some kids. So, you know, at, at your conference uh, back in December, uh, you know, I got to moderate a panel talking about some of these ideas around why not let high school kids spend more time learning from home if that's what they enjoy doing. They could even do some of, take take remote classes from their favorite uh, math teacher in their high school, but at nine o'clock at night, you know, and then they sleep in the next morning. But there's some policies around seat time and credit hours and, and the rest that get in the way. So do you think states are in the mood to start tackling some of that? Or is that still off in the future once we get past the crisis? No, there are states that are still thinking through. And I think if you look to Arizona and the innovation grants that Governor Ducey provided to a for Arizona to give out kind of these flexibility micro grants, innovation Mm -hmm. grants, there are several states that 
I know we're going to see flexibility or waiver policies to do just what you're talking about, mm -hmm. Mike. What are things that we've waived? Mm -hmm. We know that they've still worked, even though we've waived them. And now we should just provide permanent flexibility, whether that's to how credit's earned, to seat time, to different funding policies. I would also say things that states have done like Idaho and Oklahoma, states that have used federal money for digital wallets or for supplemental ESAs, you're going to see states want to codify those, mm -hmm. make those more permanent after they've experimented with them. They know families want opportunity and they're going to pursue them further. All right. Well, this is fantastic. Thanks again, Patricia. It'll be exciting to see how this comes out. Maybe we can have you on uh, further down the line uh, as the, these legislative sessions do their work and find out what happens. Of course, people can check out all the latest on, on the website, the Excel and Ed website, which is excelined.org. Is that right, Patricia? That it is. Boom. Huh? How about that? Free advertising. Free we don't advertising. charge you a nickel for it here. <laughs> I just want to spread the good ideas. All right. Well, again, Patricia Levesque, CEO of Excel and Ed, really appreciate you coming on the show and hope to come back sometime soon. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, David. Have a good day. Right. Now it's time for everybody's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, Amber, what about that amazing young poet, Amanda Gorman? Was she incredible or what? I thought she was pretty incredible, you know, but it's hard to fill the shoes of Maya Angelou, I can tell you that. But hey, she seems like she's trying. But I'll never forget yes. Maya Angelou at Bill Clinton's inauguration. You know, I, I was taught by Maya Angelou at one semester. So she's my fave and always will is be. That, is that right? That is super cool. Yeah, she cool. did a, a visiting well, yeah, well, you know, faculty thing. Well, that is awesome. Well, I, I did read that she, she, of course, Maya Angelou is one of her heroes. And of course, there's this side story, of, well, that, that she grew up with a speech impediment like Joe Biden. So that was kind of cool. I also noticed that she went to a private school when she was uh, when she was a child. I think K to twelve. So uh, go school choice. I know. Got to get the education angle in there. That's right. And English majors like myself love love poet laureates. So it's all good. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Well, hey, what you got for us this week? Uh, we have a new study conducted by Ron Zimmer and his colleagues. They're examining whether two claims that consistently plague schools of choice that would be cream skimming and push out are consistent with the evidence in two states, North Carolina and Tennessee, two pretty different states for school choice, but we'll get there in a minute. You know, at, at the front, they make it clear that the study cannot disentangle the actions of schools from the actions of families' choices to enroll or exit schools of choice. But they're looking, you know, they're kind of humble. They're, they're basically saying we're looking at differential entry and exit patterns that may be consistent with the claims of cream skimming and push out of course, the Lit Review gives you a little bit of background on the evidence on cream skimming and push out. The rigorous evidence doesn't show too much, but they make the claim that their study's a little different because they're looking at these things together and not piecemeal. They're looking at a broader concept of choice because they're looking at magnet schools and open enrollment schools. And they're also looking at disciplinary outcomes, not just academic ones. So all those angles are sort of new. The latter, these open enrollment schools are defined as schools identified as magnet in the Common Core data set, but not identified as academic magnet schools by the local school districts. So thereby, we assume they allow students outside of the attendance zone to enroll in them. They, you know, that was sort of a definitional thing. I think most folks know North Carolina and Tennessee have completely different contexts for choice. Basically, in Tennessee, charter schools are more likely to be charter school students are more likely to be uh, Black and have lower test scores and enroll from urban areas. 
In North Carolina, they're more likely to be white and have higher test scores and enroll from suburban and rural areas. So that's important to keep in mind that context. Their main analysis spans from 2010 through 2015 in both states. It does not control for student characteristics, just a little reminder, because they're examining these moves regardless of those characteristics. But then they go through this whole section where they know that their results remain consistent when they do include the student controls and their various sensitivity analyses. That took a lot of space to kind of go through that. All right, the results, they find no evidence consistent with cream skimming in either state for charter schools or for open enrollment schools or for TPS. Only the magnet schools show evidence of skimming, which isn't really surprising given that they often have selective admissions. Specifically, students with above average math achievement relative to the achievement of their prior school are 18 and 9 percentage points more likely to enter magnet schools than students with below average achievement in both those states. Then the push-out results. Overall, low-performing students across all sectors are more likely to exit than high-performing students, so that's not too surprising, about 4 to 10 percentage points more likely. However, and this is sort of the big headline finding, students with prior year suspensions and expulsions are 23 percentage points more likely to exit charter schools in Tennessee compared to students who had not been suspended or expelled. Consistent with this claim of push-out or evidence that sort of aligns with that, the comparable figure in North Carolina is 15 percentage points. Moreover, and then they dig in because they've got more sort of fine-grained data in Tennessee, and they find that these push-out behaviors appear concentrated during within-year moves. So again, that's consistent with this idea that you're not waiting until the end of the year to remove these kids, but you're addressing the student at the time of the incident. Lastly, they find no evidence that charters push out students close to the standardized testing dates. You know, okay, maybe they're trying to get rid of the kids before they get tested. So they did not find that low-performing students were more likely than their higher-performing peers to exit within one to two months of the testing date. That's it. Lots of stuff, but uh, that's the skinny. Uh, This is really interesting, Amber. And, you know, it's important that we keep remembering this isn't just charter schools, but these other choice schools included here as well. You know, I'm not surprised to hear that on the front end, we don't see this cream skimming. I feel like that is pretty consistent with other research now that at least when you look at variables we can collect, like previous student achievement, that we know the kids going into charter schools are just as low performing as, as other kids in general. Of course, you know, opponents of charters will say, well, it's these intangible things, you know, that parents or families are subtly different because Mm -hmm. they're choosing these schools and it's hard to capture that. On the back end, you know, I just think we have to be careful about even using the word push out. I mean, that certainly could be what's happening is these kids are getting pushed out uh, because they're low achieving or because they're committing these disciplinary infractions, but it could also be dropping out, right? I mean, it certainly could be that kids or families decide that they, they don't like the fact that they're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being held accountable for hitting certain, you know, academic achievement or for behaving in certain ways. They don't like that they're getting suspended. They don't right. like that they're getting bad grades, for example. Mm-hmm. And they decide they're going to go somewhere else where they're, they won't get in trouble or where they'll maybe get better grades without working as hard. I mean, that, that yeah. is certainly a possibility. David looks skeptical. I mean, no, no, I'm not skeptical, but I just know you just described the same thing in two different ways, right? <laughs> And so, I mean, I'm not sure what to say, except that it seems to be happening. I I think this isn't the first study that has found some evidence of this. It's possible to overstate it, you know, how much it's happening. It's also possible to understate it. How you feel about it in the abstract probably says a lot about your politics. How you feel about it up close probably depends almost entirely on, on the situation, right? The kid. As a teacher, I didn't always have all the information. I will say at the ground level, 
it's really bewildering. Sometimes kids just disappear and you have no idea why. Other times you know that they've been expelled. That's pretty rare. Sometimes they're moved out of the classroom uh, temporarily or permanently. I mean, and it just, uh, my reaction just really depended. I was pretty comfortable with the times that the kids were removed from my classroom um, because I was the one asking it to be done. And you sort of know where the kid is going. You know, I, get it sh- I think it should rightly be a higher bar at the school level. But it is really hard to say, even say who makes the decision, right? Is it the right. kid? Is it the parent? Is it the school? Uh, yeah. Is it all three? I mean, I remember in my own teaching days and my experience with, with charter schools is sometimes kids would get in trouble on purpose because they didn't want to be in their their charter school anymore. Their parents wanted them to be there, but they didn't. That, that was the case in D.C. Some just yeah. anecdotes uh, where kids would get in trouble so they would get kicked out. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's a lot going on that we, we don't know behind the scenes. Yeah, and I remember in the early days of charters in D.C., the uh, Cesar Chavez Charter School decided early on to basically retain its entire class of kids. I, I forget what grade level they were at, but, you know, that they had come in much lower performing than the school had expected. They weren't anywhere near grade level. And they said, we're not going to just move them along. We're going to make everybody repeat the grade. And look, a bunch of the families were like, are you kidding me? We're not cool with that. They left, you know, so, you know, I'm just saying that the the researchers use the term push out. Right. And I just think we have to be careful with that. We don't know. That's surely the case for some of these kids. They were pushed out. In other Mm -hmm. cases, they decided to drop out. But here's a big question for me. You know, there has been a debate forever. It has, uh, you know, been in the news more prominently the last couple of weeks. Jay Matthews has wrote a column recently in the Washington Post claiming that, you know, this idea of charters uh, cherry picking students wasn't true. Kevin Wellner from University of Colorado fired back with a rebuttal saying, no, it is true. I mean, we go back and forth on this stuff, right? I guess the question is when, when we make the claim at Fordham and other places, other defenders of charter schools, that these charter schools are outperforming district schools and it's not for all of these reasons. I mean, is that legit? I mean, is, is this a big factor for why we see higher student achievement in charter schools is because they do winnow the student population over time that the lower performing kids or the, the disciplinary problem kids leave? Well- I mean, well, is, my, does that explain it all, David? Is that, I, that, I don't that, know if it explains it all. My guess is it explains some of it. Um, I, I also think it's important to understand to, to note that that's those two things you said aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right? It could be that charters are doing this, and it could also be that charters are outperforming traditional public schools. They could be outperforming them because of this. And just to be clear, what I mean by that is it could be that they are serving otherwise equivalent students or very, very similar students in traditional public schools. They, they could be serving similar students better. And it could be partly because of the kinds of students that are at the school. That's an important distinction to make. The fact that this is happening or seems to be happening doesn't necessarily invalidate the claim that charters are performing strongly. Um, and it could be related to it, but it is, right. it complicates things. I don't, no, it, I, I'll grant you it complicates things. Oh, right. I mean, because the point would be, is it the other stuff charters do that are praiseworthy and could be, right. Right. They, they have a strong curriculum. They help their new teachers get better mm-hmm. faster. They have a, you know, strong yeah. school culture, on and on and on, high expectations, you know, and that's been our claim is that that's the main reason. It's those things that are inside the black box that charters are doing that are helping them get these results. The opponents say, no, it's only because of the cherry picking. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess one thing I'm curious about is whether these kinds of effects are big enough to give the opponents some fodder for their arguments. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amber? It's really really hard to answer. I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, come on. Oh my gosh. But these are some big effects. And look, the, the other thing, percentage I, points more likely in this case is a, is a pretty big difference. Now, what percentage of the effect that explains is a different story. Right. And I would also, maybe just to finish on this is to say, look, I think we would support the notion that traditional public schools should have some of these tools at their disposal too. I mean, we have talked about how, you know, it's important for districts to have some kind of alternative schools for kids who are chronically, who chronically misbehave or create disorder or dangerous. We want to make those schools as strong as possible. We don't want it to be dumping grounds, but you've got to be able to maintain a strong order. And if there's a handful of kids that make that impossible, you've got to solve that problem. It's not fair for the rest of the kids. Likewise, if there's some low achieving kids who are bringing down the achievement of everybody else, you know, maybe by sucking up too much of teacher's time, you know, we've got to allow public schools some flexibility in dealing with that. So, you know, this may be an area where, again, the opponents have a point, but the answer isn't to get rid of charter schools or to restrict them. It's to allow traditional public schools some of the flexibilities that charter schools enjoy. Mm-hmm. I would add to that funding equity is also the answer. I struggle to articulate this a lot, right? But if you're interested in, fun- in equity, funding equity is the best form of equity, in my opinion. All these other sort of definitions or types of equity tend to come with really serious costs, right? And every, and of course, funding equity comes with them too. But it's much more tenable to say, as you were saying, kids who have severe behavioral challenges, you know, will be educated to the best of our ability, and we will put the appropriate funds towards that, than it is to say, you know, well, equity demands that these kids be in a regular classroom, and the teacher just has to deal. So that'd be my, my plug. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Important study, Amber. Thank you. Let's point out a study that uh, challenges some of our notions here at Fordham. We are not afraid of that. We're so (laughs) honest. Bring it. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.